Well, again, it's good to be here on the Lord's Day with God's people assembled together in person. Again, a little foretaste of heaven, heaven on earth, as it were. And so, if you would, please take out your hymnals and turn to the book of Colossians, chapter 2. We're going to continue our study in the book of Colossians. Colossians chapter 2, we will be looking at the first three verses. The Apostle Paul says the following, For I want you to know what a great conflict I have for you and those in Laodicea, and for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, and attaining to all riches of the full assurance of understanding, to the knowledge of the mystery of God, both of the Father and of Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Amen. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. It is instructive. It has the ability to sanctify us by the power of your indwelling Holy Spirit. God, we pray that you would enlighten us, give us eyes to see the glorious truths that are here. And Lord, through your Spirit, we pray you would be pleased to apply them to our lives, that we would walk ever more closely with you in everything we do. For indeed, O glorious God, may you be glorified now, we pray through Jesus Christ. Amen. Vinko Bogatai. Vinko Bogatai. Do you know that name? Maybe one or two of you might. If you're over 50, you may not know the name, but you probably know of him. See, before ESPN and Fox Sports and 24-7, 365, around-the-clock, constant sports coverage... If you wanted to watch sports, you either had to watch it live, maybe it would be on TV, or you had to wait. You had to wait till the weekend. You had to wait for ABC's Wide World of Sports. That show played for decades, and it would be on the weekends, and they would show anything, everything. Cliff jumping, surfing, swimming, auto racing, fencing, ski jumping. And I'll never forget the intro. Went like this. ABC's Wide World of Sports, spanning the globe to give you the constant variety of sport, the thrill of victory, and the agony of defeat. Victor uh, Vinko Bogatai, who was a Yugoslavian ski jumper, in the 1970 International Ski Jump Competition, in Oberstdorf, Germany, he was up and coming, somewhat young in the sport, but he was there to compete. And on his second jump, as he was hurtling down that steep decline, one of his skis slipped out. And just before he was ready to launch into the air, he tumbled. And he tumbled and he tumbled and went flying off the ski jump into the crowd 
and all you could see was feet, head, feet, head, feet, head. As he tumbled end over end, you saw skis go flying everywhere. You saw people flee. It was a horrible, horrible accident. Well, you might know what I'm talking about here because that video of of poor Vinko became the image that endured for decades of the agony of defeat. Now, they ran different images for the thrill of victory during that intro. They would have different sports and different people, the thrill of victory, a boxer holding his gloves in the air, or, or maybe an auto racer winning, winning at the end, or, or whatever. But poor Vinko, he, he endured decade after decade. Now, it does have a happy ending. 20 years later, they had their uh, Wide World of Sports Awards dinner, and uh, Bogatai was honored. He was a guest uh, of honor, and he received a, a standing ovation. See, he survived the accident. In fact, he wanted to get back up on the ski jump and try it again, but they wouldn't let him. So he retired wisely and went into doing other things, but they brought him back for this dinner, and as it turns out, there was all these uh, athletes there, of course, and uh, supposedly, when all was said and done, the first athlete that came running over to him to get an autograph was Muhammad Ali. So Vinko ended up being a winner at the end. But I'll never forget that image of the agony of defeat. And that has been burned into a lot of our minds. If you watch that show, as I did back in the 1970s and I believe into the 80s, that image is burned into your mind. And so we're going to look at the word agony today. And we're going to look at it in our text. So if you would, let's look at verse 1. Paul is talking about the church. And he says, for I want you to know what a great conflict I have for you and those in Laodicea and for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh. Now there's our word. We just saw it. Did you catch it? The word agon in Greek. It's translated here as conflict. It means in the original to struggle. Struggle under a great strain or in the face of great opposition. And it typically had an athletic application. It was always used in an athletic context. And so you can see how now 2,000 years later, in our English language, which is obviously a different language from Greek, it still carries some of that element of an athletic endeavor. We brought it into that context, the agony of defeat. But we have to be careful. This is a problem for uh, people who have a little bit of Greek, as I think Pastor Fry said before, a little bit of Greek can get you in a lot of trouble. You need to be careful because you take this word, you see agon, you say, oh, that's where we get our word agony from. That must be what Paul is saying here. He is in pain. He is suffering for the church. And indeed, that is an element to what he is saying. If we look Back at verse 24 in chapter 1, and we we went through this last time in, in detail. He says, I now rejoice in my sufferings for you. 
and fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ for the sake of his body, which is the church. So there's no question that Paul suffered for the church. And I believe that's part of what he's saying here. See, we look at the word agony now in the English language. It's, it's taken on a, a, an evolved meaning. We use it to describe intense pain. Oh, this headache is just agony. Or, oh, this toothache, it's just agonizing. And that's how we use it. But in Paul's day, it meant more than that. There was an element of that. But again, within the athletic context, it, it referred to striving for pressing on for the conflict that would come from an athletic endeavor. And, of course, we all know that athletes have to endure. If you're going to be any good at it, you're going to have to endure some element of pain. If you've ever been a part of any sport, any organized sport, if you work out with any degree of regularity, you understand that pain is part of the process. No pain, no gain, right? So there's no question that that's an element of what Paul is saying here, but it's much more broad than that. And I believe that we can apply more or less the full meaning of the word agony to this text. And so I've titled this message, Agonizing for the Church. Agonizing for the Church, with the understanding that we are not reading into that term simply pain. It's much more than that. It's much more than that. It refers to conflict or striving, as some of your translations will have it. So, what is Paul talking about here? Why is he striving? Why is he in conflict for the church? Well, he's expressing his heart. He's, he's pulling back the layers, so to speak. He's revealing his true desires, what he is truly passionate about. Well, in what way? We'll go back to verse 1. He says, for I want you to know what a great conflict, there's our word, I have for you and those in Laodicea, and for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh. So remember, he's writing to the church at Colossae. He did not found this church. This was not his church. He had not seen the saints in that church or in Laodicea. And he says, so I'm writing to you who have not seen my face. I've never been there in person. And for any of you, anywhere, any saints who haven't seen me in the flesh, face to face. Oh, why is that important? Does he care more for them than he has, does the, those that he's seen face to face? No. But I think we understand the importance of face to face contact. On Wednesday nights, we get letters. The church receives letters. I'm on a prayer list, a Baptist prayer list, Reformed Baptist prayer list, and we get prayer requests from other churches, and we try to read them to everyone so we can pray for one another. And we get very detailed prayer requests from other churches, and it's, it's a tremendous blessing. It, for one, makes us ever aware that the world does not revolve around this church. This is not the only church where Christ is doing a work. We are one small church that is part of the church universal, and God is working all over the world. So that's encouraging to me, and it's encouraging to pray for other saints. We, we find out that, you know what, we're not the only ones that have problems either. We're not the only ones who have prayer requests. People are struggling. People are suffering. There are needs all over, and we need to pray for one another. But these are people that we 
we know, maybe in some cases, we even get to know them very, very well by name. We have missionaries that we support. We have uh, schools that we support. We get updates from them. We pray for them. We pray hard for them. But we've never seen them face to face. Now, some of you have had that opportunity when you've gone and traveled. You've been in that particular town. You've made it a point out of going to visit these particular churches and to get to know these people face to face. We've had people come here and visit us when they're in town. Doesn't it make a difference when you actually get to see people face to face? Doesn't that just cement them into your mind and into your heart? You know that church. You've shaken hands. You've embraced. Maybe maybe you broke bread with them. You spent some time with them. You got to know them. That's a priority. See, we just got done with a two-year worldwide experiment that said, We don't need to be in person to have real, close, intimate fellowship. You can do it through a computer screen. It's just as good. It's just as wonderful. I remember during COVID, seeing uh, commercial after commercial, hearing commercial after commercial on the radio of, of marketers desperately trying to get you to buy their products through the computer and telling you, this Christmas... You know what? It might be different than Christmas's past, but it's going to be just as good. Grandma and Grandpa won't be there in person, but they'll be just as happy, and it'll be just as warm and just as intimate because they're watching on their computer. And, of course, we all know that, yeah, it's a blessing to be able to do that under circumstances when you can't travel, but it's not the same. Quit kidding yourselves. It's not. We know that. Second John, verse 12. John says, having many things to write to you, I did not wish to do so with paper and ink, but I hope to come to you and speak face to face that our joy may be full. He also ends uh, the book of 3 John the same way. The fullness of joy in Christian fellowship, how do we get that? Through looking at each other through a computer screen, writing letters or emails or texting. I mean, those are wonderful blessings. Technology, in this case, is a blessing. It's opened up all kinds of avenues for communication that we didn't have previously, but it does not replace what we do here in person. You know how important it is what we're doing right now, side by side, shoulder to shoulder, sitting there, picking out our hymnals together, singing in unison, praying together, and then the fellowship afterwards. This is a priority. We have to do this. And let us not get caught up in thinking that, you know what? We can, we can do this or, you know, we can watch it online. A lot of people do that. Do you want to go today, honey, or do you want to just watch church online? No. We need to be here in person. There is no substitute. And Paul knew that. So he had a particular burden for these saints that he had never met. It's different. Had he gone there, had he seen them, had he been able to embrace them, break bread with them, spend time with them, get to know them intimately, personally, 
It would have molded them together. It would have brought them together. There would have been a closer unity and intimacy that you just can't have otherwise. And so he wants them to know, and he wants us to know, his heart. He is agonizing. He's in conflict for these saints because his heart is for them, and he wants to express that to them. See, in our day, we think, okay, well, if I'm going to really express emotion, i got to type a lot of emojis on my cell phone. You know, I, I'm so happy for you, so I use a really big smiley face or... Or, uh, you know, I'm really, really uh, mad, so I use a frowny face. Or, you know, the beat red frowny face. I really want to get the point across. Paul wants to get the point across to these saints that he's never been able to embrace. He's never been able to break bread with them or spend time with them. So he tells them, I am languishing here. I am struggling. I am pressing here. This is like an athletic endeavor. I am in conflict for you because I have never seen you. To what end? What is he in conflict for? What is he burdened with? To what purpose? Well, if you're a note taker, you want to write this down. He wanted them all, all the saints in Laodicea and Colossae and all around in that region who had never met him. He wanted them all to come to full maturity in Christ. Now, that was his desire for all Christians everywhere, but he's especially burdened for these saints that he had never seen or met. Well, he's going to give us how that breaks down. Number one, it's going to be encouragement. Encouragement. Two, fellowship. Fellowship. And number three, maturity. So we're going to look at the first one. Encouragement. Verse two. He says that their hearts may be encouraged. Why is he agonizing for the church? He's agonizing that their hearts may be encouraged. Encouraged? I mean, they're always depressed? No, I don't believe so. If you would, turn to the book of Philippians, chapter 3. I believe we can see this in clarity. Philippians chapter 3, verses 4 through 14. Verse 4, Paul also writing here, he says, Though I also might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so. And so Paul says that if you think you can work your way to heaven, you think that, that your fleshly endeavors, your attempts at pleasing God, you think you can make it to heaven, Guess what? I got you beat. Verse 5, he says, Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. He kept a kosher diet. He followed all the laws. Concerning the law, he says, I was a Pharisee. No one was more strict than a Pharisee. Verse 6, concerning zeal, I persecuted the church. Concerning the righteousness which is in the law, I was blameless. But what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. So everything that I thought was to my benefit, everything that I thought was to my aid in working my way to heaven, when I met Christ, I realized they weren't. 
They weren't to my benefit. They were to my loss. They were working against me. They were counting against me. Verse 8. Yet indeed, I also count all things loss for the excellence of of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ, and be found in him, not having a righteousness which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attend to the resurrection from the dead. Verse 12, not that I've already attained or I'm already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead. I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. If you like simplicity, you don't like long lists, complex lists, this is for you. Paul says, one thing I do, one thing, forgetting all those things which were behind me, all those attempted uh, uh, things that were, I thought were to my gain, all of those attempts at self-righteousness, trying to gain God's favor, I forget all of that. Instead, I reach forward. I reach forward to those things which are ahead. I press toward the goal, the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So what is being encouraged? Why is Paul desiring so to see the saints in Colossae and Laodicea and everywhere who haven't seen him? Why is he so emphatic about their encouragement? Well, because Christian life is hard. It's full of ups and it's full of downs. We all know that. We understand that. One day you're Elijah. You're facing 450 prophets of Baal, 400 prophets of Asherah, and you're able to call fire down from heaven, as it were, and and you receive great victory, and you see the Lord working mightily in your life, and you're so encouraged, and you're so blessed, and you feel so empowered. It seems like it's just nothing but success. And then the next day, like Elijah, you find yourself fleeing from Jezebel, from one woman. It's got its ups and it's got its downs. It's got its victories and at times it has its defeats. Paul wants those saints, he wants us all to be encouraged in our walk with Christ. And that, of course, leads us to the second point, fellowship. Fellowship. Verse 2, he says, that their hearts may be encouraged being knit together in love. John chapter 15 verses 12 through 13 says this. This is Christ speaking. He says, this is my commandment. And when Christ says, this is my commandment, you look, you listen. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this 
than to lay down one's life for his friends. So, Christ has commanded us to love one another. But how much? To what degree? We're to lay down our lives for one another. Now, that might seem a little over the top. You're sitting there saying, hey, I love you all, but to die for you? That's quite the call. But what did Christ do for us? He died for us. See, we have no problem with that. Well, what does he say here? You are to love one another as I have loved you. Will we be able to love with that degree of perfection? No. But should it be our goal? Should we strive? Should we agonize for that? Absolutely. And that was Paul's point. Paul not only desired that in himself, but he wanted to see that in all of the churches, and especially in these saints that he's never been able to meet. And that brings us to the third point, maturity. Maturity. Back to verse 2. He says that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, and attaining to all riches of the full assurance of understanding, to the knowledge of the mystery of God, both of the Father and of Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So he says that he's burdened, he's striving, he's agonizing for these saints that they may attain attain all the riches of the full assurance of understanding. Not a little, all of it. The knowledge, as he says, of the mystery of God. And we encountered this word last time, mystery, mysterion in Greek. We saw that in uh, chapter 1, verse 27. What is that? Well, Definitionally, it's something that was hidden in the past, but now is revealed. Well, what is that? Verse 27, he says, To them God will to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And we looked at this last time. What is this mystery that he's talking about? What is it that was once upon a time hidden, but now is revealed? The saints under the old covenant, they knew of the coming Messiah, and they had wonderful revelation. Again, Isaiah brings us profound, very detailed information about the coming Christ. But that beautiful union between Christ and his church, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, the empowerment, the enablement of of the believer in Christ through the Spirit, that was a mystery. That's something that we here on this side in the New Covenant, we know that. We understand that. And we're blessed to know that. He wants these believers to know that to the fullest degree, to understand that to the greatest degree. And I have to point out here quickly, there's a a textual variant there. It says, to the knowledge of the mystery of God And if you have a New King James, it says, of the Father and of Christ. The earliest manuscripts don't have of the Father. That was probably added by a well-meaning scribe at some point. The English Standard Version reads the same verse like this. 
to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. See, it's all about Christ. What is this mystery? It's Christ, the fullness of Christ, the hidden treasures of wisdom and knowledge that are found in Christ. Those are things that that the Old Testament saints could only wonder about. They were hidden, but now are revealed to us. I was immediately uh, reminded of King Solomon. We're studying uh, Ecclesiastes on Sunday nights. If if you've been a part of that study, if you haven't, please please come. It's been a tremendous blessing. King Solomon, he's he's trying to find the answer to Havel. What is that? The 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 shortness, the brevity of life, the the lightness of life, and 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 this is something that he was trying to find some kind of weightiness, the the that which would endure beyond his lifetime, and and through all of his profound efforts, all he could accomplish was this is this is Havel, this is vanity, as it's translated. This is vanity. All is vanity. It's all vanity under the sun. Well, he concludes at the end of that book, in chapter 12, verse 13, and we will get there one day. He says, let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. So this is where he finally concludes everything. He says, fear God and keep his commandments, for this is man's all. Paul would say, amen, absolutely. You want to... You want to have meaning in this life, that which is transcendent, that which will endure? Absolutely, you fear God. You keep his commandments. But what is all that uh, based on? What is, what is the means by which all that is accomplished? It's Christ. You give everything to Christ. We know this wonderful mystery that's been opened up to us, that it is Christ who enables us to do that. Now, is this anything that natural man can understand? No. Natural man, natural man, the unsaved man, can't understand this. He doesn't care to understand this. Matthew chapter 13, verse 9. Jesus says, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And the disciples came to him and said, Why do you speak to them in parables? He answered and said to them, Because it has been given to you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. There's our word. It's been given to you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For whoever has, to him more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. Therefore I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see. And hearing, they do not hear, nor do they understand. And then verse 16. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For assuredly, I say to you, that many prophets and righteous men desired to see what you see, and did not see it, and to hear what you hear, and did not hear it. What is he talking about there? Conformity to Christ. Unity with Christ. And Paul here is agonizing. He's striving. He's in conflict for these dear saints that they would know these things. 
things that the world can never know, things that the world doesn't desire to know, things that the Old Testament saints looked ahead to and could only wonder about, these great mysteries that are now revealed to us in Christ. Paul is agonizing for these dear saints that they would know Christ to the fullest degree possible in this life, that they would walk as closely with him as they possibly could, in unity with him as they possibly could. This was his great desire, and it should be our desire. For ourselves, absolutely. Again, throw those covers off in the morning before those feet hit the floor, before you grab your phone and start looking at whatever. You pray, oh God, that I would walk ever more closely with you today, that I would know Christ better today than I did yesterday that I would know the power of your spirit in my life more intimately than I did yesterday, that I would walk in obedience to your commands more so today than I ever did in the past. God, help me. God, help me. Well, in closing, I want to read something to you. I uh, enjoy reading from the Valley of Vision. I've read this to you in the past. Uh, different uh, poems or poems and songs and, and prayers from Puritan writers. And this particular one is simply titled The Savior. And I think it captures the essence of what Paul is, is talking about here. The author writes, Thou God of all grace, Thou hast given me a Savior. Produce in me a faith to live by him, to make him all my desire, all my hope, all my glory. May I enter him as my refuge, build on him as my foundation, walk in him as my way, follow him as my guide, conform to him as my example, receive his instructions as my prophet, rely on his intercession as my high priest, obey him as my king. May I never be ashamed of him or his words, but joyfully bear his reproach. Never displease him by holy or imprudent conduct. Never count it a glory if I take it patiently when buffeted for a fault. Never make the multitude my model. Never delay when thy word invites me to advance. May thy dear son preserve me from this present evil world, so that its smiles never allure, nor its frowns terrify, nor its vices defile, nor its errors delude me. May I feel that I am a stranger and a pilgrim on earth, declaring plainly that I seek a country, my title to it becoming daily more clear, my fitness for it more perfect, my foretastes of it more abundant, and whatsoever I do, may it be done in the Savior's name. What's he talking about there? Sanctification. Knowing Christ, knowing Christ intimately. The same thing that the Apostle Paul is teaching us in our text. Amen? All right, let's pray. Oh, blessed and glorious Christ, our Savior, indeed, 
We rejoice in this text because it exalts you. And it presses upon us that, that most excellent passion, that highest degree of endeavor, Christ-likeness. We have goals in our lives, we have things we pursue, but nothing, nothing should be more important than growing close to you, walking with you, knowing you. Oh, blessed Christ, oh, Son of God, help us in that endeavor. Encourage us, even as the text told us to be encouraged. Oh, encourage us that we would know you better. We pray and give you thanks. Amen.